podcast, the education podcast, we are looking at the intersection of race and disability. Our goal is to understand the lives of our students as best as possible and share our research with our fellow white educators, thereby creating hopefully more equity in the classroom and a more just and effective education system for everyone. So who are we? I, my name is John Ebersole. I have been working with people with special needs for the last seven years. I started off working in a community in Germany for adults with severe special needs and now work in a school outside of Boston for children with severe special needs and am getting my master's of education in that field. My co-host here, Elisa. Hello. So what, Elisa, how long have you been working with people with special needs? Well, my mother was also a teacher for students with severe special needs. So I kind of grew up volunteering in the classroom, um, but I more formally uh, started working in a school setting two years ago. I work at the same school as John. I'm currently a substitute teacher and I was a teaching assistant. Thank you. Today, we are going to talk about how ethnicity, race, or culture shape the experience of autistic children. I will try and tease out how students from different ethnicities experience autism differently. And there are many factors that go into this. And I do not consider myself an expert by any means. I have done research into this and will try and convey to you guys my understanding to the best of my abilities. Um, the program for today is first to look at what is autism spectrum disorder and how has it changed over time. Some of the current trends in the diagnosis of the disease and some reasons for those trends as well as some relevant contexts because we're trying to understand the lives of people with multiple identities and we have to do that justice by looking at it through multiple lenses and in multiple different contexts this is difficult and i will do my best and i hope that you join me for the ride before we get started, I wanted to make some notes about the terms that I'm going to be using today. I, the research that I looked at differs widely in how it refers to different ethnicities. Um, generally, I'm going to call any Hispanic-related labels, Latinx, uh, African-American, Black, and then Caucasian people, white. And those are gonna be the labels I use. Those are the ones that I'm comfortable with using and have been taught to use. I also wanna make one more note that there is very little data on Asian Americans or the Pacific Islander American community as it relates to autism. The, this was a trend across all of the research that I looked at. I do not know exactly why this is, but the lack is the lack of research into it is notable. So starting with the definition of autism spectrum disorder or ASD, 
It was first described by Leo Craner in 1943. He studied 11 children that had certain behavioral deficits. A year later, Hans Asbergers would go on to describe very similar children that had fewer support needs, though. As you can guess, Asbergers coined the term Asperger's syndrome, and for a very long time, people who had Asperger's were not considered on the spectrum. That changed in 2013, when the definition became standardized and Asperger's syndrome was pulled into the overall umbrella category of ASD. This standardization in 2013 also excluded other diseases such as Rett syndrome, which, although it presents in very similar ways to ASD, has a known genetic cause. For the standard definition, which I'm pulling from an article written by researchers Fontaine, Winters, and Behrman, is that autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder with varying phenotypic expressions typically diagnosed in early childhood and characterized by deficits of communication and social interaction, as well as repetitive and stereotyped behaviors. What they mean by varying phenotypic expressions is that autism can present in a myriad of different ways. In my lifetime, I have worked with children with lower support needs that are now going on to college. And I've also worked with other people on the spectrum that are nonverbal and require a lot of support throughout their life. So having an ASD diagnosis does not mean a whole lot for an individual's capabilities. Now that we know what ASD is, let's look at how race and ethnicity affect it. I have found two major trends and that is the underdiagnosis of children of color and the later diagnosis of children of color as well in comparison to Caucasian or white children. I'm gonna start off by talking about the underdiagnosis. This trend has been shown in research led by Gordine and in other research led by Wiggins, Morier, as well as Harris. It has been known of since the early 90s, and we're still seeing it as a trend today. So exactly how underdiagnosed are people of color? It really varies depending on location and the study that is done. Um, That's interesting. It, it's really crazy. And in some places it's better, in some places it's worse. Um, and in some places, certain ethnicities are underdiagnosed more than others, and then in different study locations, those trends actually switch. Um, notable is the fact that Moyer has looked through research and had no biological reason for this. This means that there is no environmental trigger for it. It is purely based off of the way that people are interacting with each other. It's a social issue. Uh, Moyer also looked at CDC data, which showed that in many locations, Latinx children were the most underdiagnosed when compared with black children or especially white children. The research agrees on the fact that white children are diagnosed the most and the most accurately. Wiggins 
this is really new research that uh, her research team just came out with. It was a really, really broad study, including over 4,000 children in about 10 different states. Um, and what they did is they looked at data from a certain network and they tried to find out how many children of what race are diagnosed with autism, how accurately are they being diagnosed. They found and supported the underdiagnosis of children with autism. And they also found a group of children that had no autism diagnosis on their record. They combed through those children's um, school and medical records and determined based off of the current diagnostic criteria in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders that they could receive an autism diagnosis if a clinician had approved such a thing. Of this subset of children, 55% who did not have a diagnosis and also, but would have qualified for one were not receiving any autism specific services in the schools. What makes one likely to be part of this group is being a student of color, having no intellectual disability, or that also means a cognitive function in the normal range, um, having an evaluation at or later than three years old. And what they mean by evaluation is that this is the first time that someone noted in their records uh, school and or medical, that this child's development is not typical, that there is some delay happening, that they are not on par with their peers. So this is a twofold issue then, both in healthcare and then it brings it to education too, because it's the teachers and the doctors who are not suggesting a diagnosis or services. Yeah, exactly. It's a failure on both fronts. What we see when we're connecting lines is that children of color with lower support needs tend to be the most likely to be not diagnosed. Not having a diagnosis affects the um, trajectory of children with any disability because it does not allow them access to the supports that they would need in school. It does not allow them access to early interventions and they also can't get approval for interventions through their healthcare provider. So that would really amplify any effects of not having a whole lot of resources. So if you're looking at a lower income family, that's not having a diagnosis is going to impact them a lot more than a wealthy family that can privately finance um, interventions such as occupational therapy, physical therapy, behavioral therapy, or speech and language all of those. This information is coming from a study that was done in 2019, it was published in 2020. The crazy thing is this problem had been suggested and this was known about since 2003 and in over a decade, very little progress has been made. Moving on to later diagnoses, the exact timing of how much later children of color receive their diagnosis than uh, their white peers, differs depending on study. Wiggins, which again is the most recent information, uh, says it's on average from one to two years. Gordine supports that with an average of around 1.5 years later. 
studies note that uh, the timing of diagnosis is also independent from the family's socioeconomic status. So um, it's just about race then? Yeah, yeah. It really, it, even if you look at the numbers, it, it isolates race. Um, that, you know, a low-income white child is still more likely to get diagnosed sooner and have access to the supports that I mentioned than a Black family or uh, Latinx family. To give, toss out some numbers there, um, on average, uh, this study from 2002 found that low-income Latinx children received a diagnosis around 8.8 years old, Black children around 7.8 years old, and white children around 6.3 years old, which especially when you compare low-income white families to low-income Latinx families, those two years are really big. They could have profound impacts. I should note that there could be one reason why these diagnoses are happening later, and that is because to receive special education services in school, one does not have to note a, spe note a specific disability until the child is eight years old. They can receive services for a disability under the general category of developmental delay. So that's one possible explanation. However, that does not explain why there is still this disparity between different ethnicities. If that were the case and that were totally true, then everyone should receive their diagnosis by eight years old at the latest. That is not the case. And so there is, as they say, something fishy going on. In these schools, I mean, there are autism-specific interventions that can be done usually, too. So these, you know, students who are not diagnosed later, even if they are receiving services, there won't be as much direction or the, you know, you think as a teacher, you'd want to read research and sometimes having a diagnosis, it's easier to make a behavior plan. So these teachers and these students are missing out. Entirely. There is a lot being lost with the lack of diagnosis. And with so much being lost, I think it's really important to look at the whys and what exactly is happening here. And why are these diagnoses coming later? The, from my research, I've kind of broken them down into two main categories, one being parental views and cultural factors, and then the other being clinical or medical hurdles that these families face. One study notes that uh, cultural views around what is normative behavior for children can vary widely. So looking at a study out of India, those Indian parents noticed social deficits before they noticed language deficits in their children. This is entirely the inverse from white parents. Um, there's the classic case of Navajo families that view disabilities in an entirely different way and have a totally different approach towards interventions. Another study notes that parents of color of autistic of children reported fewer concerns of typical autism behaviors than white parents did. This study was conducted through a questionnaire that we're saying rate how concerning this behavior is and whether you think it's indicative of autism or not. 
Another study that was done in Ecuador suggests that uh, Latin cultures tend to blame child deficits on the parenting style and not necessarily on the child. These researchers suggested that it, this is one possible explanation for why Latinx children are then diagnosed later because parents believe that their children's developmental delays are their fault somehow. So moving on to medical hurdles, um, I wanna read one quote from an article. Given the stereotyping, discrimination, and racism that many African-Americans have experienced when seeking healthcare services in the past, they are less likely to view institutionalization as a helpful option for their children. Thus, African-Americans' negative associations with treatment and services should be understood in the context of a client from a different culture being devalued by practitioners from the dominant society. I really like this quote because it highlights how the salient power dynamics between ethnicities explains why parents of color would be discouraged to seek out professional medical advice because of the history that they have and because of the difference in cultures. I like how it depicts the fact that by the medical community, people of color are not being valued as equally as white people are. And this is injustice that has to be addressed and has to be looked at. If you go into research as far as what barriers parents of color cite when seeking out medical advice, they will cite language barriers, being off-put by professional jargon uh, that clinicians and medical staff will have incredibly different worldviews from their own. This means that the advice that they could be getting might not be relevant whatsoever for their lives. The doctor might suggest solutions that are entirely impractical for them. They also are dealing with less informed uh, medical professionals. These are people that are not receiving the same quality of care because the quality medical staff are not in their area. Lastly, uh, it's been shown that people of color receive lower quality healthcare services in general across the board because of rampant discrimination and lower access to quality healthcare insurance. Wow, so, so this is two national issues, both education reform and healthcare reform, just really impacting these families disproportionately. Yeah, exactly. It's the lack of diagnosis and the later diagnosis then affects what happens on the school side. And the, what happens on the school side affects what happens on the medical side, as we'll see in a hot sec. To tying these, some of these points together, a study from 2003, when asking parents of color about their experiences with medical professionals, they found that clinician-patient encounters were shaped by stereotyping, bias, and uncertainty. In a more informal study that took place in Baltimore, uh, 22 female caregivers of autistic children were questioned, and 20, I should give you the demographics, 20 of them were black, one was Latinx, and one was white. This is not a large comprehensive study by any means. Eight of the black caregivers reported 
clinicians disregarding their early concerns. This means that these families did not had the concerns, there was no cultural issue. They went to the clinician and said, my child does not seem to be developing typically. And the clinician said, no, you're wrong. And I think that is so emblematic of what is happening here and why diagnoses are happening later. And last point that I want to make about this is tying into the relevant context that I'm going to get into. And that is the parents that persevered and pushed to get a diagnosis for their child were more likely to be higher educated and come from a higher socioeconomic background. So far, we've looked at the trend where children of color are underdiagnosed in comparison to their white peers, and also that children of color are diagnosed later than their white peers. We've seen that there are cultural barriers that they face, as well as discrimination by medical professionals. This gives us a nice starting point to understand autistic children of color's lives. There are other relevant contexts that need to be considered when trying to understand these students' lives. From my research, I've found that the parental level of education and socioeconomic status, and what I call a cultural gap between teachers and students, also play a very important role in a child's likelihood to be diagnosed properly as well as receiving that diagnosis as early as possible. I'll turn first towards the level of parental education. As we saw in the last example from Baltimore, parental education influences those parents' ability to advocate for their children. I found it interesting that while reading an article published by Towell in 2014 and then a follow-up article that was published in 2018 about a cohort of children living outside of New York City, that she noted the really high level of education of the cohort parents. This study was looking at different developmental trajectories and did not report on race whatsoever. Some research done by King that was published in 2011 also did not report on race. King found that children who are diagnosed with lower support needs are more likely to come from a high SES background and have a higher level of parental education. This will sound familiar to the research that was done by Wiggins and published in 2020 that showed that children of color are more likely to be diagnosed if they have if they fall on the greater support needs side of the autism spectrum. Now if we broaden our scope from just the level of parental education to then also include educational settings in general, Jürgen Alsop, doing research in Atlanta, found that schools were the most important factor in getting a diagnosis for low SES black children with young mothers. This research team also found that 40% of all ASD diagnoses happened in educational settings. Now looking at socioeconomic status, I would like to bring up the paper from 2011 by King. This research team 
looked at diagnostic rates in the 90s. And it should be noted that these rates are definitely a little bit dated. They are all far behind where we're at today. The team found that diagnostic rates for high SES neighborhoods stabilized by the mid-90s at around 40 per 10,000 children born. This is not the story for low SES neighborhoods. The diagnostic rates ranged from, from 20 per 10,000 live births to 46 per 10,000 live births. If we assume that the diagnostic rates from the high SES neighborhood represent the most true incidence rates of, in the general population based off of the diagnostic criteria at the time, then we see two things are happening to people living in low SES neighborhoods. Firstly, we see a large underdiagnosis, and then we see an overdiagnosis as well. In a qualitative study in Baltimore, uh, there were no differences in diagnostic rates between wealthy black and white families. It could note that having a lot of monetary resources could, to a certain extent, uh, limit the effects that race has on receiving a diagnosis or not. It could also correspond to, John, to the point you said about schools, because people with higher socioeconomic status might be living in a neighborhood with a better school system. I totally agree with you. Um, I think that the school systems are incredibly vital. And that would also make sense uh, in the same research. Although diagnosis rates between 2002 and 2010 increased for all socioeconomic statuses, the disparities between high and low socioeconomic statuses continued. Uh, for the last point of looking at socioeconomic status, I'd like to turn to a 2016 study by Kurth, Mastergill, and Pascal. They were looking at who was being placed in a restrictive environments. They found that not only was being a child of color a correlate for being in a more restrictive environment, but also coming from a low SES background. And this shows and demonstrates not only that children of color are more likely to be diagnosed if they have greater support needs, which we saw from the Wiggins article, but also that children with multiple identities are at a greater risk for going undiagnosed if they have lower support needs. Who is deciding where these children are being put? So who is deciding that? That would be up to school administration. This brings me to the last relevant context of a cultural gap between teachers and students, or school staff and students. Moyer found that school administration and the diversity of that has a direct effect on how many students of color are in special needs classrooms. This research was not specific to children with autism. So there is some gray room there, but the research says that diversity of teaching staff and administration leads to fewer students of color in special needs classrooms. I think this highlights 
how vital a role culture plays in diagnosing students with autism and recognizing autistic behaviors and highlights the need in our society to have administration and staff that reflect the student body that they are teaching. I want to wrap up today with talking about some my takeaways and some areas of research that I'd be really interested in. One of those is looking at certain children who are diagnosed with autism at an exceptionally young age. So we're talking at or around two years old. About 17% of these children will then go on to lose an autism diagnosis later on in their life, normally by middle school or junior high. And what I would be interested in is how do interventions and specifically early interventions play a role in that? Because there could be a great chance that these kids were either going to lose that diagnosis either way and it wouldn't matter. But if it's shown that interventions are necessary for them to lose this diagnosis, then it is vital that A, these studies report on ethnicity and race of their cohorts, and B, that children of color receive autism spectrum disorder diagnoses at the earliest time possible. On a more general note, I think that there should be interventions done for clinicians and teachers to help them address the implicit biases that they have towards people of color so that they can provide better services for them and more accurately address the needs of families with autistic children. I also think that there needs to be more broad outreach to communities of color and educate them on autism spectrum disorder in general, the resources that they have if their child is autistic, and have a support system in place for those families. Lastly, I think that there should be more training in special education for teachers. But Alisa, I think that this is a topic that you're going to get into, right? Yeah. I'm John. And I'm Elisa. Thanks for listening to Haltas. Thank you.